0: Well, if you would turn to Acts chapter 17, you should have a set of notes. There's a test at the end, so I hope you're paying attention. So, yes, you're, uh, as you know, we've got a rotation between uh, Michael Venter and Dr. Tom Crago, and I'm so grateful uh, Dr. Tom Crago will be teaching on more, or hoping on a weekly basis, starting in the fall, and I'm just so thrilled to have him Uh, serving in that capacity we have been moving through in fact the title of the series is turning the world upside down oh thank you this is why i have nate Uh, i want to thank nate and these young guys for coming so early to set up Uh, they drive all the way over from almost lebanon whitestown area to come on a sunday or thursday morning and set up so thank you guys so turning the world upside down and what we've been looking at is uh, maybe not why isn't this working you, you moved it. That's what you did. Yeah, there you go. So we were looking at Paul's missionary journeys. That's our focus. And where we're at at the moment is Paul's second missionary journey. And as that's the map that's in your notes. And this is where Paul, for the first time, will enter Europe. All right? And not for a vacation. He'll enter through, uh, well, Neapolis, which is modern Greece, to Philippi, Berea. And we're making our way now down to Athens, This section of 17 is considered the climax of the book of Acts. It's the first and only sermon to Gentiles preached by the apostle to the Gentiles. And what I want you to watch as we go along is these two questions. What does Paul say about God and what does he say about man? And his sermon, again, is to Gentiles. These are not god fears. He'll start there. These are not Jews. These are secular uh, folks, philosophers. And so watch this because this is key. So in verse 16, it says, while Paul was waiting, we're in chapter 17 of Acts, 17, 16. While Paul was waiting for them, that is Silas and Timothy, he left them at Thessaloniki, Berea area, I should say. Uh, he says, the spirit was greatly upset because he saw the city was full of idols. I don't know about you, but, uh, You've been in settings where either at your workplace or maybe it was those college years and your, your heart just aches because the sin all around you. <laughs> I remember one time I came back to the, the flat in Aberdeen here in Aberdeenia, my doctoral studies. They put me with a bunch of undergraduate students. That was awful. But uh, they had the bright idea of putting porn everywhere with a red light. They thought that was just funny. And uh, I said, Lord, (laughs) give me the right words not to lacerate them at this moment. And I said, What are you all doing? And they said, well, we're trying to get women. I said, well, this isn't how you get women. They don't like this sort of thing. They said, oh, really? And so they took it all down. (laughs) But that's how I felt. It was greatly upset. I was very disturbed. And that's what you see here in the text. He saw the city was full of idols. And so he was addressing the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. It's his modus operandi. He starts at the synagogue. And that's what we see here. And in the marketplace, every day, those who happen to be there. And some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. We're going to we'll talk about them in a minute. Paul, he will do this later. He will divide his audience. When he speaks to the Sanhedrin, that's that Jewish Congress, and it's formed of Sadducees and Pharisees, he will side with the Pharisees to, to pit them against the, the Sadducees. He'll do the same thing here. His The Stoics believe in an afterlife. They believe in and there's tenets, elements of it that believe in a supreme being, etc. And so he's going to side with the Stoics here against the Epicureanism. So watch it. It's very clever. Uh, Paul's a bright fella; He got good marks at school. Conversing with him, and some were asking, what does this foolish babbler what to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods. That is not a compliment. That is what this same group nailed Socrates on. This is what ultimately was Socrates' downfall was he proclaimed foreign gods. They said this because he was proclaiming the good news about Jesus and, watch this, the resurrection. We're going to come back to that twice here in this section. So they took Paul and brought him to, this is Mars Hill, as we know it, Barapacus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some surprising things to our ears, so we want to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there used to spend their time in nothing else than telling or listening to something new. That is not a compliment, that parenthetical statement, by the way. Um, So here we are at Athens on this Paul's second missionary journey. And Athens, its glory years were long gone by the time Paul came on the scene, Uh, it, It was glorious before the time of Christ. Yet, they still lived in the past. The Athenians had a very high view of themselves. They thought they were the sophisticated ones. They thought they were the cat's meow when it came to intellect. And they had this knowledge base and they liked to pontificate. And you even see that in the text. And so we're told, again, in verse 18, that there's two philosophical groups that Paul will encounter as he comes to Athens, and that is the Epicureans and the Stoics. And I talked briefly on them, but you can see a greater description down at the bottom of your notes. Again, the Epicureans, they were known for flaunting pleasure. Since there's no afterlife, you better live it up now, because this is it. The Stoics were just the opposite, restraint, you know. And vice was, the pleasure was a vice. You just were not involved in this. So on the top of page two, well, second paragraph, notice the text tells us that they ask, what does this foolish babbler want to say? I know Tom uh, Crago loves word studies and this is a fun one because what it means is a pecking bird that's picking up seeds. It's not a compliment they're saying he's a dodo bird who is acting like a peacock because he's going around picking up these little things and then he's he's trying to say, "Oh look how wonderful I am!" And you're a foolish babbler," is again is the the declaration, and it it is again is not a a good thing to be known for, and so we're, we're told that this group who's insulted him and and. And we see Paul's had some interchange. It comes to verse 19, and they brought him to, and this is somewhat like the Congress. This was a hundred uh, member uh, Senate uh, in ancient Athens that he appears before. Now, if you go to uh, Athens today, and I've done it, you take the group at the top of Mars Hill and you read Acts 17 and you talk about the text. They didn't probably go to the top of the hill. Uh, for one, it's dangerous even now to climb that hill. Uh, it would have been at the foot of the hill uh, near the Agora. And we know they have found the Senate House there. So he would have appeared here at the foothill of, actually right right in this area, the foothill. The uh, Acropolis is over here. And this is a picture of the Agora. And so we're told this is where we are. Uh, and we're brought to this region. And again, the statement in 21 is not one that's flattering. So let's go to the the scene. It says in verse 22, so Paul stood before this group and said, men of Athens, I see that you're very religious in all respects. Now watch how Paul handles his outreach, okay? For as I went around and observed closely your objects of worship, i even found an altar with the inscription to an unknown god this is exciting i even put a photo of one Uh, they have we have found we the archaeologists have found at least two altars to unknown gods one was found at pergamum the other one which is in the photo of your notes is from uh found in rome uh so suspect that there was one in athens it's never been found probably destroyed so Paul says, I went around and I found this one. And if you've walked around the Agora and Athens or you've climbed the Acropolis, I mean, there's gods everywhere, right? And so he says, or monuments to gods, and he says, therefore, that what you worship without knowing, I'm going to proclaim to you. <laughs> I love it. Here he goes. Now, remember, Paul's alone here. He, he doesn't have any sidekicks. He's flying solo at the moment at least what it would indicate. The God who made the world and everything in it, who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by human hands. That's Isaiah 66. But it's also what the Stoics taught. He said, nor is he served by human hands as he needs anything because he himself gives life, breath, and everything to everyone. From one man, he made every nation of the human race to inhabit the entire earth. Uh, by the way, what he's holding to is a literal six-day creation. <laughs> if you think about it, uh he's making make it very clear. God created man. God created this earth. And they set their times, the fixed limits and the places where they would live. So they would search for God and perhaps grope around for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Notice it's an individualized response. Collectively. We don't come to the Lord. It would come individually. For in him we live and move about. That's the Stoic thought. So again, we see this idea. And exist as even some of their own poets have said. And now he even quotes one of their own. For we too are his offspring. Paul, he is very uh, well trained. Not just in Jewish thought, but also in Greco-Roman thought. And so here he quotes one of their secular poets and he says, as he quotes them, he says, listen, you know, this is right. This is, th- this is clear. Therefore, if the God has overlooked such times of ignorance, he now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day on which he is going to judge the world in righteousness. Even the Stoics believed in, in a judgment in the afterlife by a man whom he designated having provided proof to everyone by raising him from the dead. That's the key. Verse 32, now when they heard about the resurrection from the dead, some began to scoff and others said, we'll hear you again. And we see that there's two, Dionysus and Damaris, who believe along with some others in the next verse. Well, let's unpack this and let's just look and see here what's happening. We're going to open it up for some dialogue. But in verse 22, as you can see, the context of the term that I see are religious also could be seen negatively, but on the surface, it, it's a bit complimentary. He's just saying, I applaud what you're, you're doing, but you have this unknown God, which I'm going to reveal. That's seen there in your notes. And he talks about how God has revealed himself two ways. First is through general revelation, we call it, and the second is through special revelation. What's general revelation? Nature. It, it it's general in that it's it's not uh, it's for all people at all times uh, and one can one is without excuse. you can live in Timbuktu, Taiwan or Tijuana. God has revealed himself and you can see that from the sunrise and a sunset. you can see that from the the, the creation around you right <clears throat> And that's what Paul is stating to the Athenians yeah Tim. Well, Romans 1 and Psalm 19 says you can see His handiwork, you can see His wrath, you can see His glory. All of this is seen in creation. It is not sufficient to save. It's sufficient, though, to condemn. Because no one is without excuse. I remember I had some... This was teaching New Testament to 18 to 22-year-olds. There are a few things that I knew always would be a problem in the class or raise questions, and this was one of them. The idea that innocent people could be condemned. And there is no one innocent. First, you're born a sinner. Secondly, Romans 3 says no one seeks after God. And in Romans 1, it's clear God has revealed himself in creation and then not responded. So that is why there is no such thing as an innocent heathen. And that's a hard thing for some 18, 22 years to get grasped. But the truth of the matter is that anyone should be saved is by God's grace right? Why he selected me, I don't know. I really don't. But that's God's grace. Now, God's grace doesn't end there, though. He gave a special revelation, and what is that? What's special revelation? Yeah, the the word, it's objective self-disclosure by God to various people, various times, in various ways. Ultimately, it's this, right? It's the word of God for us. This is his special revelation. He revealed some to Moses. He revealed some to David. He revealed some to Paul, to Peter. And collectively, we have this here, uh, this special revelation. So there's general, which is nature. It's it's God's disclosure to all people. Special revelation is an objective self-disclosure. And again, as we stated general revelation is sufficient to condemn special revelation is the only means for salvation yeah and uh, look what Paul says here let's just look at what he states under the inspiration of the spirit he says God has made verse 24 God who made the world everything in it heaven and earth it's a limitable, uh it says verse 26 from one man he made every nation so that verse 27. Here's the reason so that they would search for God and perhaps grope around for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. So, the idea is that it's to met to woo you. I remember a former colleague, she was a genetic professor of genetics. She said, in her doctoral program, looking through a microscope, she said, I, I said, No, she goes, I there has to be something higher, and that's when. Uh, she went to a church and turned her knee, bent her knee to the Lord. So, yeah, <laughs> you look at the the world that he's given, and it should draw us to God. Of course, Romans 1 states, actually, that's not the case, No, because no one seeks after God. It's hope to woo, but it actually serves to condemn. But that's why Paul takes us to the next level, doesn't he, with special revelation. <laughs> Now you can see in your notes there on page 3 that God is sufficient again it's sufficient to give fellowship with God comes through that special revelation and that's what he's attempting to highlight here as we can see and what does that special revelation entail? Notice what he says here and go back to the text. Therefore Verse 30, therefore, although God has overlooked such times as ignorance, he now commands all people, what, to repent, to confess their sin, to recognize him, and that is the one who came, died for the on our cross for our sins, and was raised from the dead, you see there in verse 31. So Paul, he lays out general revelation, and he also lays out special revelation here in the text, and that leads us to the two questions. Based on verses 26 and 27, what is Paul saying about God? What do we see? What does he state? 26 and 27. Yeah, he is omnipresent. In other words, he is everywhere. What else? Remember, this is he's identifying the unknown God for them. It's, it's just really clever. It's a, great. Let me take what you embrace, and we're going to move to this level. And again, uh, the next step, obviously, we need to be thinking is how do we reach our world for Christ? What is the rhetoric? We, we live in a post-postmodern world. Uh, dogmatism is not loved. So you, you got to move them to this level. If you just come out and say, boom, you're going to be oil on water. You, you got to move them to that level. Steve and I were talking last week about some folks that he was sharing Christ with, and and, and moving them to that next step, which is great. I'm the present. What else? Just shout it out. What's the text state? Accessible. He's accessible. What else? Sovereign. He's sovereign. What else? Near Yeah. He is also near. He's the creator. Right? He, he apparently is loving because he's willing to reveal himself in his creation. And then the list goes on, doesn't it? <clears throat> now, notice what he says about man in verses 30, really 32, 33, right in that area. What's he say about man? Now, well, 33, 31. What's he say about man? Yeah. In other words, we're filthy, a lot, lot, you know, scoundrels, right? Uh, we're sinners. We need to repent. Yeah, that we're ignorant. What else? Yeah, judgment is looming. What, what else? I'm sorry? Offspring. Yeah, offspring. We're God's creation. We're grovers. Yeah, we're gropers. I mean, you get the idea, right? Now, philosophy begins where? Every time. Begins with man. When you start with man and move to God, you got a problem every time. Now, I'm not saying that philosophy, just throw chuck it out. There's some value, I think, in philosophy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but where, where should we begin? We begin with God every time. Right? I, I expected a hearty amen from Tom. Tom, you want to come, you want to comment on that? No. Uh, I'll put Tom on the spot. I'll, I'll show some cards. Uh years ago we were working together and we were reworking the curriculum core for the Bible department. And we had some men who wanted to start with philosophy. They wanted to deal with that rather than first beginning with God. And those of us, the old traditionalists, were like, no, 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 no. You got to start with God or we're going to have a real problem. This thing is going to derail real fast. And that's exactly what Paul does with these secular philosophers. He takes them to God first. He says, well, let's, let's talk about God since you do recognize him. By the way, he never mentions Athena which was the, uh, Athens was the kind of the patron of Athena, right, on, on top of the Acropolis. He doesn't go there, and that's a whole other discussion. But he, he says, let's talk about God, and then he comes to man. Yet the Epicureans and the Stoics, they're, they're all about man first, and then perhaps how then does God, if God does exist, fit into this equation? That is a serious problem. If you don't get anything else from this morning, that is huge. And what Paul does here is outstanding. It's just, it's brilliant as he engages the secular folk for the gospel. Questions, comments on this? This is huge. I know, Micah, you're in the public square often. Do you want to comment on this? I don't know if you've looked at Acts 17, but it's a key text for what you do but for all of us in a world we live in. Well, and, and I think he is stoking the fire, and he does it by quoting their own, which I mentioned there in your notes there. You see his, his mugshot. He's not the most handsome fellow in the world, but uh, Eratus, who, who argues that we are creating the image of God. And so he, 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 he knows their lingo, and he's able to use it to, to lead them to the gospel, Paul did that with the, the, the Jews as well. I mean, look what he does with the Sanhedrin later. I wish we had time to look at that text. He does the same thing. He he takes them and he moves. I mean, <laughs> Paul knows his audience. And yet he does it graciously, doesn't he? I, I think he does. I mean, he could have land blasted it. He doesn't do that. And because he's willing to, <clears throat> we cannot bury our heads in the sand. We're gonna become like the Amish, real quick. Nothing wrong with the Amish, but we need to engage our world for Christ. And and Paul understood that. He knew his audience, and he knew which audience he was dealing with. This is why I love, compare this to what he says to the Sanhedrin. It's vastly different. He starts where they are, general revelation, and then he moves them. And in in so doing, he uses their own uh, own people to, to, to make the case for the gospel. I mean, it's brilliant. It's just marvelous, and and that's why we need to know. Uh, no, we don't need to go to uh, certain locations or read certain things to say. I, we can know though our audience well in a world that we live in, where truth is is no longer absolute, where it, it's whatever you want it to be. You know, how do we engage that world? In fact, on the next page of your notes, there's a section for further thought. That's more application for the week. But there's also for further study, and under further study, this is something you might want to do. There's an article that I've even linked, uh, as I mentioned, in sharing the gospel, Which what hurdles will we encounter in speaking to it? It's really a post-postmodern world. And I, I've given you Brian's article, which is really good. And that is from probeministries.org. If you're not familiar with that website, it is fantastic. It's an apologetic website, probe.org. And there's some wonderful articles on there. Also, probe. P R O B E. Probe. Probe Ministries. Yeah, it's dynamite. Some of the articles, I'll be honest, are a little weak. Um, you wouldn't get very far with the arguments, but there are some that are fantastic. So probe.org. It's really good. Any other thoughts, comments on this? We'll get to the application. And you mentioned going to say it either too, the other passage, but this seems to be as good of an explanation in general about the whole concept of apologetics that we can really take and digest and practically use in our lives. Yep. Well that's a how-to to like you said, deal with our final Why is this probably the most practical? Because we're living in a in a non Judeo Christian world or one that is quickly fading. I think I mentioned my daughter. Our kids are in public school, middle school. And did I mention this? I don't know. I'm losing my mind. Forgive me if I have. Our our daughter had a teacher last year who said we are doing everything we can to strip Christian influence on this country. And she went after Christianity. She went after the Bible. Uh, and eventually, it was time to have a meeting. So we asked to have a meeting. And I just walked through her biblical, his, historical, because she said we were responsible for slavery, the historical and cultural inaccuracies of the text. We gave her John Stott's book. And and my wife came as a counselor and said, it's obvious you've been hurt by Christians. There's You have an ax to grind. I don't know what it is. I'm sorry. You know, uh, it, it diffused her quickly because she expected us to come in, you know, and just, you know, charge... You know, that was the Lord, thankfully, and my wife, who um, kind of said, you know, we're we're sorry if you've been hurt. There's things here, obviously, you've got matters with. But here's a lady who has no Judeo-Christian mindset. If anything, she hates it. And that's the world we live in. Uh, Long gone are the 1950s. hate to say it. We don't live that anyway. Uh, Just look at our news. Um, So, we, instead of woe is us or, or coming into a holy huddle, we need to be like Paul and say, yep, let's know our world and let's engage it. And so Selah, right? I'm getting a big, I should get another amen from Micah. Come on, Micah. I'm singing to you. All right. Well, let's, let's look at the text then. And let's look at some intersect for us as we, we go through this. And by the way, don't miss it. Paul did have a positive response. Even some members of the Senate there in Athens respond to the gospel. And that's pretty exciting. Uh, we don't know any more about Dionysus and Damaris. Dionysus, his name is after a god. Isn't that great? And yet he bends his knee before uh, the Lord, and uh, that's exciting. And others as well. Well, the intersect in sharing the gospel. This is letter A. We've been talking about this. We need to be proficient in relating to our audience. Paul was able to communicate in a variety of settings as he addressed various groups of people. Say, well, I'm not a Paul. Well, you need to be. <laughs> uh, you need to be a good student of the Word, and you need to be a good student of your culture. It's not an option. I'm just. It isn't. Uh, we need to be. Uh, <clears throat> we need to be engaging our world and. And whether he was speaking to Jews or Gentiles, highly sophisticated, those in Athens who thought they knew it all, or if he was dealing with the backward bumpkins in Philippi, he was ready to address these folks for the gospel, whether political figures or whether it was craftsmen. He knew his audience and he communicated accordingly. So 1 Corinthians 9 is a great text. Uh, I encourage, well, you know what? We, we got some time. Let's look at this because this is powerful. First Corinthians 9, if you would just turn briefly there, starting in verse 19. Paul gives us a little bit of his philosophy of ministry and, and how he handles it. He says in verse 19 of, 1 Corinthians 9, for since I am free from all, I can make myself a slave to all in order to gain even more people. To the Jews, I became a Jew. To those under the law, I became one under the law. Verse 21, to those that were free from the law, I became one free from the law. No, he didn't compromise his walk with the Lord. No, he did not compromise his message. And that is a delicate thing as well, isn't it? it's, you you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, no, no. But what he is saying is that I've engaged the world that I live in for the gospel. And he says in verse 23, I do all these things because of the gospel so that I can be a participant in it. Do you not know that all our runners in a stadium compete, but only one will receive the prize? And then so in verse 26, I do not run certainly or box like one who hits only air. Instead, I subdue my body and make it my slave so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So he's guarding his heart. He's guarding his message and so that he won't tarnish the, what he has to proclaim, right? And he does it so that audiences will understand, Uh I love it. So 1 Corinthians 9 fits so well with Acts 17. Another thing here in your notes and application as we look at this text, the underlying truth of the gospel is that God is the creator of life, and thus we are God's creatures and we are responsible to the creator. That's what he's trying to do here. He's trying to say, listen, God is the creator. He's revealed himself and we are expected to respond. Why? Because we need him. And and so the unknown God, God has made himself known. And what a great message to proclaim. And then third, as we look at this, the importance of one's message and one's is vital, the tone is vital. While Paul was saddened by his culture, he still spoke with love and sincerity. He did not land blast him, he did not picket at Mars Hill. <laughs> No, but he did stand up and say, no, I, I got the truth. Let me tell you what that is. He didn't, he didn't you know, he let me let me walk you through this so that you can see what this is about. Any for, further thoughts, comments, cries of outrage? <laughs> There's a, Quote at the bottom of your notes there. One can engage in vigorous apologetics while simultaneously demonstrating genuine respect for opposing views. An acceptance of others as fellow human beings created in God's image and the object of God's limitless love. At times, it's. I think this is why Paul probably traveled usually with other people so they could hold him in check I know as we were engaging that teacher, my wife grabbed my knee once and was to say, calm down, boy, calm down. Walk in love. Because, I mean, I was starting to see red as she made a couple comments. Um, No, we, we are to gauge our world with the love of Christ while speaking boldly. I wish I could have taken you to Mars Hill and and had this discussion uh, this morning because there's nothing better than that breeze is blowing, the sun is shining, and you're going through this text on Mars Hill. But nonetheless, uh, we live in a world that desperately needs to know who is God and who is man. Right? Or woman, or whatever they call themselves today. (laughs) And with that, I shall close. Father, we thank you for the world that you have placed us at this time. It's easy to say, oh, I wish I was back to the 50s or back to the Victorian era where there was this strong Judeo Christian mindset. And yet, you've placed us here in this time, Mm -hmm. at this place, and we need to be very good students, first and foremost, of the Word. And we thank you for it and then secondly we need to be good students of the world in which we live so that not not to be desensitized to the things of the world but so that we might be able to engage it properly and Lord I thank you as I look across this room there are so many of these men who are engaged in church or parachurch ministries and I just thank you for them for some it's it's the workplace. For others, it's in the home uh we are raising a generation that uh is facing challenges we never even dreamed of and so, Father, give us great wisdom, give us clarity, give us insight into your word, an insight to the people that you put in our path, even today. may we be sensitive and may we be willing and 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 bold and proclaiming who you are and who we are. And we thank you. And we praise you in the name of our Savior, Jesus, who came and revealed you to us so that we could have a relationship with you. And we thank you that you are a known God, that you want to be known, and you want a relationship with us. So we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.